0: Welcome to another episode of the Bible Guys. My name is Rick Kleiner, and I'm joined here with Jerry. Jerry, it is opening week for Major League Baseball. Wow. Thursday, is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Cub- Cubbies are opening at Wrigley with the Brewers for four games. Who's, yeah. Who scheduled that? That could be brutal. That could be. We're going to start the season 0-4 because we are, this year, the AAA team. At best. Yeah. Yeah. It's But we're diehard fans. Yeah, but I'm struggling with it. All right. What's, what's the struggle? I just...
1: It's going to be another hundred years. Oh, don't say that till man. the next one. No, 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 no. And um, I just, you know, I get frustrated with culture. I hope culture doesn't wreck baseball like it's wrecked so many things. Uh, other mm-hmm. things. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so we'll see. And I think um, the Ricketts family is wrecking the Cubs enough more than the culture is. I'm just telling you.
1: Both. Yeah.
0: But I'm just uh, telling
1: you. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. But yeah, I I expect they'll duel with the Pirates for yeah. the. Last place as usual. Yeah.
0: I, well, I I like some. Of the, I mean, I like some of the guys that are playing. Um, I miss, I miss my guys. I miss yeah. Baez. I miss Rizzo. I miss Bryant. I miss Rizzo. That's the one I miss the most. Yeah, hey, I miss Ron Santo and Billy Williams. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. Guys. I get, I get that. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm liking, I'm liking Clint Frazier in the outfield. I think he'll have a good season. Stroman seems like he's really caught on with the Cubs culture. I think he's. Yeah, know, I think so. Hopefully that keeps up. You know, and. I, I kind of like the the stories of like, you know, Frank, Frank, the tank, Frank, Schwind- you know, I like yeah, him, right. Schwindel. Wow. I like the idea that he, this guy came from nowhere and then like hit a ton. Um, I'm just hoping some of these other guys step up, but you know, don't count on it, mm. but we'll see. <sighs> what if, can we play the miracle? What if it happens? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you're an episode of major league? Like who are these guys? I,
1: I you know, I've lost track yeah. of them. I, I have not kept up as much, even yeah. though I'm wearing a Cub shirt
0: right now. Absolutely respect, but uh, yeah, I don't don't know a lot of them. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but here's my thing: is one of the thing's I'm the thing I miss about Rizzo is he was like a team leader. And I don't know who we have as a team leader right now.
1: Well, you need leadership. Yeah, and what better place
0: to find leadership principles than the Bible? <laughs> nice segue because that does lead us to our question um, a couple of weeks ago maybe our listeners remember we talked about we kind of mentioned almost as an off-handed comment we were talking about the, the role of in, in in the proverbs where it says without vision the people perish we talked about Ooh, I remember that we talked about leadership and and what that word vision meant and then we kind of did an offhand I think I think it was me I made an off-handed comment about don't use nehemiah as your pastoral intern research and that led us to a question from one of our listeners. Do you happen to have that question with you?
1: I do not, sir.
0: Awesome. So that. Was but
1: <laughs> but I, I will say this as you're looking it up. All right. As I recall the question, um, I wanted to state a disclaimer because I, I believe, if I remember correctly, there were kind of two parts to the question. Yeah. And by the way, the question is framed. Whoever wrote that in, I think, kind of knows what's going on when it comes to, to interpreting the Bible. Mm-hmm. So my disclaimer is, based on the first part of the question, I'll be trashing some things, Yeah, but
0: this is not aimed at the listener because I think the way he framed the question is right on track. Yeah, here's the question. It says, if Nehemiah is not about leadership or how to build a church, then what is it about? More importantly, what is God revealing to the nation of Israel Yeah, in that book? See, I think that— the last part is so
1: critical. Yeah. Um, and just kind of on the negative side, what he's getting at is evidently he's heard a lot of times that, you know, you can find leadership principles in Nehemiah or whatever. And really, you can find leadership
0: principles anywhere. Yeah. You don't need the Bible for that. Yeah. I'm not against using Nehemiah as a principles of leadership. Okay. Like leadership in general. That's fine. But when you take it to the church, when you start using, when you start making it ecclesiological, uh, so, for example, there's that big thing, I don't know if you're familiar with, With, I mean, I know you're, you're on the pop culture bandwagon, right? Of course. Um, but, you know, with, with Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, his famous sermons where he used Nehemiah to promote things in his church. And he was going to start throwing people out by their hair and things like that. And he, he never actually said he would do that. He just thought it was cool. He, yeah. he, in one of his sermons, he alludes, like, this is something really awesome, something he'd like to do. Um, yeah, I don't, because Nehemiah is not building a church. Nehemiah is a wall builder right. Right. and he was involved in rebuilding through uh, of the metaphorical rubble of the the society of um of Israel of specifically Jerusalem but to take it and make it ecclesiological I think you make a big mistake there.
1: Yeah and I think even the deep deeper problem and that that's just symptomatic of of the deeper issue and and this may sound kind of really philosophical and out there but I really think it's the point and it is the question, who determines the meaning of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Does the reader determine it, in which case you know, the reader has their concerns and their questions and their agendas, and then they go to the Bible and by golly, they're gonna find something in there that they can use to fit whatever they want to say. So is the meaning and significance of the text determined by the reader, or is it determined by the original author in which case we need to go back and try to figure out what did that writer mean when he wrote, or as we've stated at other times, is the Bible about my story or God's story?
0: Yeah, I think that um, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, just to answer it. Cause somebody may be listening to this saying, but what about the passage that says that those things were written for our instruction? Well, yeah, they are. The problem is, is they're, they're not written for your interpretation. In yep. a sense that you can make it fit what you want it to mean. Exactly. It's It's written for your instruction. Take it in its original context, what it was meant to be, and then let the application filter from that. Rather than, man, this would f- this would be a great lesson on how to deal with bullies in your church. Like Nehemiah grabbed them by the hair, beat some of them, and threw them out. Yeah, you might want to do that, but that's not the best way to go.
1: Yeah, and even even more tragic is if if we implement that kind of methodology, the Bible ultimately becomes meaningless mm-hmm. because it's then treated by every individual what they want to find there and what they want to see there. And it basically becomes like reading Aesop's Fables or something. You come up with a moral to the story that's relevant for you, and by the time you compound that by this person and this person and this person, suddenly the Bible means you know a hundred things, like you're interpreting a piece of modern art, and then it can sustain no objective meaning at all. So we always need to de- to determine what does what did the text originally mean to those who read it. That should be our concern.
0: Okay, so maybe we should start with then, since I think we figured out the we've answered the first question. The idea of it's not about leadership. It's yeah. not about it's not about church governance and how to run a church. So what is God revealing to the nation of Israel specifically in the story and through the book of Nehemiah? Well, I think if I may answer that
1: generally, and this is kind of When you approach any book in the Old Testament, and I'm glad we got a question on the Old Testament, that's kind of nice for a change, but you want to begin generally by looking at the historical setting, you know, what's going on at this point in history, and you want to look at what we might call the theocratic setting, that is, God chose the nation of Israel, he made covenants with them, he made promises with them, and throughout their history he is working out that rule through them on earth. So we always need to ask, I think, generally, those kinds of things. What's going on historically? What's going on theocratically?
0: Well, let's do that. If I may, if I'll start with the historical part, because I love this this kind of stuff. So when Nehemiah takes place, we are talking about, this is after the stuff from the prophets, where they have, God had been telling the people of Israel, the people of Judah, listen, because of your sin, because of you going to worship after the other gods, doing the very things I told you not to do that God was going to um, fulfill the promise he made to them of, if you do these things, if you go after these other gods, then I'm gonna take you away from the land. Right. He's, he's told them all through um, through the, the prophets who acted as covenant lawyers, hey, this is gonna happen, and it did happen. Um, Assyria comes in in 722 BC for Israel, and then in 586, roughly around there, Nebuchadnezzar brings Babylon in, and through a series of deportations, basically empties the land of majority of the people. Um, I I tell students, he came in and took the best of the best, Mm -hmm. then the best of the rest and the best of the last, you know, he got, he got, he got what's left. And so what we're dealing with is now Nehemiah in, um, under a uh, foreign rule. He is the cupbearer to the King, um, which I love that we picture him as a butler, but this is the guy who, um, he, dies every, he could die every morning at breakfast. He's literally tasting everything that the king tastes before the king eats it. He, he wakes up every morning going, I could die at breakfast. And I think that's a neat, neat, neat little thing because that's the man God had to go and rebuild the walls and deal with all the problems he was going to deal with, all the opposition. Here's a guy who just doesn't care. Because he could die at breakfast, he just he he's had a steady diet—no pun intended—of not sure if he's going to make it through the day. So a little thing about um, gossip doesn't bother him. You know, he just kind of goes through it. I think that's a neat topic too. Um, so he's he's under that um, in that in that rule uh, underneath a foreign power, and then he hears that the city is in ruins, and he weeps over it. And God uses him to go and do a mighty work in rebuilding that city's walls.
1: I think you've done a nice job, you know, laying out the history, and and really you hit on the theocracy as well, because as you said, back in um, Deuteronomy, particularly 28 to 30, when Moses is speaking to this new generation going into the land, he lays out for them, you know, a series of, of blessings for obedience and a series of cursings for disobedience, and he says, choose life or death, which... If I may harken back to our Romans 6.23 podcast, Life and Death, Uh, that was the same kind of idea there. He wasn't telling them, if you keep the law, you'll be saved and go to heaven. He was telling them, if you keep the law, you'll be temporally blessed. If you don't, you will die. You will experience the judgments uh, of the covenant uh, arrangement. And the ultimate cursing, as you said, was they would be taken out of the land and taken to foreign powers in Babylon. So that's where we find ourselves historically and theocratically. And uh, I also like the, the Nehemiah issue because really it was providential that a Jew could rise to that level of prominence. And, and not only the, the tasting and thing, but he was a confidant of the king. Uh, this was a very significant position that he held. So again, I think because
0: God was going to use him in this whole process. So in the book of the message of, and that was all first chapter and and prologue, um, so I don't know if you you've probably set through sermon series for the book of Nehemiah I know I have I have and uh, it's it's interesting stuff I mean yeah the the uh, the jerk in me loves Nehemiah because here's a guy who just does what he wants to do you know he believes that God has has called him to do it and Nehemiah acts it seems as most of our listeners will know it's almost like a journal. He's even writing in it, saying, Lord, remember me for what I just did here. It's almost like you have a personal copy of Nehemiah's journal on what he was going to do while he was there. And you see him dealing with not just wall building, which takes 52 days, which is remarkable, um, but he also deals with some socioeconomic issues. He handles, he discuss even some religious ideas when the people are using, um, I mean, they're working on the Sabbath. They're t- bringing their wares into the city. Um, on the Sabbath, and so he's dealing with a lot of different things, almost to the point he's got to clean up a lot of the, I'm going to use the, the idea of this cultural overgrowth that has grown on the path of Orthodox Judaism, Biblical Judaism, of, hey, you know, you're not supposed to do these things here, but because we've been removed from the land for so long, just do those things. Nehemiah's come in and basically clean house. I think another thing
1: that that helps in you know to answer the question, what does this mean to Israel? Originally, um, Nehemiah and Ezra were considered as one work, right? And so, really, if one wants to understand Nehemiah, you have to get the context of Ezra as well. And in Ezra, you know, you start off with the edict of um, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who allows the exiles to return home which they should have by the way which can get in our whole whole Esther discussion. Yeah. I don't think she's as as uh, above board as we might imagine. But anyway, they're they're allowed to go back and Ezra returns for spiritual reform, Nehemiah goes back as you say for uh, to rebuild the walls, to have the city rebuilt and so forth. And I think one of the reasons for this is that they're going back to the city and There are threats from without, there are internal dissensions, and a lot of the questions and concerns that the returnees would have is do we still have a connection to the promises made to Abraham, made to David? So I think the functions of Ezra and Nehemiah and others who went back was to, you know, let's get our spiritual house in order, let's get the temple up and running again, let's get the walls built. And then we will be able to walk obediently, as our fathers failed to do, in anticipation of that ultimate Messiah King who's going to come.
0: Yeah, and as you read the rest of the, I'm going to call them the post-Restoration Prophets, um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, yes. you see that they didn't. You know, they, built right. the, they rebuilt the walls, Same they thing. laid the foundation of the temple. And what's that That famous, in my opinion, I, I just love this passage, where when they laid the foundation of the new temple, those who had remembered the beauty of Solomon's wept. Yes, And the question is like, why were they weeping? Is it weeping for joy? No, you find out the prophets, they wept out of sadness because it didn't look like it was going to be as beautiful That's as right. Solomon's so that the prophets have to say, this one's going to be better because ultimately Messiah himself will worship in this temple. And, um, so the book of Haggai, uh, the prophet calls out, Hey guys, consider your ways. You went and built beautiful houses, paneled, even took care to panel your houses. Mm -hmm. Yet my building, my house lies in ruins. And he says, consider your ways. And you see God again, getting their attention because they, because they failed to keep the promise Oh, sorry. They failed to keep the covenant by built rebuilding the temple. They built these cities and or they, their own houses, and God said, "I've I've I've given you stuff, but it has holes in it. It can't satisfy you. Why? Because you have left this in ruins. So you see, a uh, while Nehemiah and Ezra should be a a wake up call. Hey, look what God has done to restore you. Get it together. They didn't get it together.
1: Yeah. Now I'm going to throw something else in here because we may never pass this away again. Mm. Probably. Um, but another relevant book in this whole time frame is Chronicles, mm-hmm. which I also believe was on one scroll our first and second yeah. chronicles. Agreed. And a lot of people may wonder why there's so many genealogies in here, you know, what's he doing? Well, I think the chronicler is trying to show the Davidic connection that the returnees still had with the promises. And so he's demonstrating look, you still have this historical connection Genealogically, the promises are still valid. Uh, they're still for you. And then Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the actual, you know, returning and the work based on that historical basis. So you've got a lot, a lot going on here mm-hmm. in Israel's history, and really this becomes the conclusion of the Old Testament, historically speaking, mm-hmm. because as you know, those those uh, post-exilic prophets are ministering during the time frame in which this is going on. So to ask, what would this have meant to Israel? This has huge implications as far as the covenants, the promises, the future of the Messiah, because as time went on, David became a type of this messianic king that was to come. And
0: this is just a huge, integral part of the Old Testament history. Yeah. And so when people ask us this question, and sometimes we give them the same answer, like, well, how does this Old Testament book apply to 21st century Christian. What is it? A lot of times we'll say, it's not about applying to you as much as it is showing the faithfulness of God. God is showing himself faithful in that even though, just like you mentioned with Chronicles, Chronicles is showing the people, the remnant, why this happened, to remind them of why it went down the way it did. Um, But God being faithful is going to keep his promise. He He said, you'll be there for this many years, and then I will restore you because God is faithful, not because you're going to do anything, not because you're going to earn it, but because God is going to keep his promises. Again, let me quote, quote Romans 11, God's gracious gifts and calling to Israel are irrevocable. And so there's that faithfulness of God component that we can't overlook. And you know, some might say, well, you guys always say that. Well, but that is the message of the Old Testament, that there's a faithful God. He was faithful all through with the nation of Israel, thereby he can be trusted we, he can be trusted now by us in his promises. He's made to us specifically that that he he saves, that he has prepared, he's prepared a way for us. He's he's provided salvation for us. He will sanctify us. He will return, and all of those promises can be trusted because God in his character is faithful.
1: And I, I think that's so huge. There, you know, if, if somebody responds like you say that, you know, that's what you always say. <clears throat> this deals with the great existential questions of life, really. And we should take comfort from this, and let me hit it maybe from a little different angle but saying the same thing, is the comfort we should draw in the fact that God has a purpose in history. And when you look at the world today, man, it seems like everything's totally out of control. Right. And sometimes I'll, I don't know why I do this, I probably should stop, but sometimes when I listen to atheists give a monologue, they'll... One of the ways they criticize a supposed God is, you know, you're going to tell me that the current state of affairs, there's a God. I mean, if there's a God, he's made a total mess of everything. Humanly speaking, humanly reasoning, that's a valid point. And yet, as we go back to Scripture, we realize that he has, does have a discernible goal. Everything in history is moving toward that goal. And when I go back to books in the Old Testament, like Chronicles, like Ezra and Nehemiah, I see another glimpse of what God is doing at at history. And he's not done yet with this. And I like how you link it with Romans. Things are going to pick up again when God is pleased. He's going to resume with Israel. These promises are going to be fulfilled. So, man, I just look at this as, hey, this is another piece of the storyline
0: in the Bible. This is what God's doing. And I take great comfort in that. Yeah. So I would say rather than looking at Nehemiah as a book of leadership principles or how to pastor a church, no, it's just showing the faithfulness of God and even using, um, how about throwing this one in there, even using someone who could be a jerk by today's standards. There you go. You're smiling when you say that. I am, because I'm I'm hoping that's true. Mm -hmm. To accomplish his perfect plan that he's got planned out. He is a a faithful God, and in spite of our faithlessness, he remains faithful.
1: And if somebody's into leadership, read a biography
0: of Churchill. Yeah, you don't need the Bible yeah. to, to create a yeah. leadership paradigm. It's- and if, if you're going to read, if you want a leadership for the church, read um, read Simeon. Read Charles Simeon. What happened to him and how he's. My, just read these biographies, guys. That's what you need to do. I, you know, John Piper always says when you to read one new book, make sure you read five old books. Hmm. Man, read some dead guys. Yeah, read, read no some. Kidding. Read the lives of these these men and women who've gone before you. What they've dealt with. That's why I love church history because it shows me, man, I I am not experiencing anything new. Um, I may think a church is, and and I don't have this with my church, but if I'm ever feeling like, oh man, our church doesn't care about the lost, I could read about Charles Simeon and his church actually locked him out. Of his church because he was letting people come in who were unsaved. Really, they locked the doors. I believe it was Simeon. I believe it was I'll all. Have, you know, I'll have to read that. Locked him out, and he just stayed faithful. Isn't I mean, that interesting? It's crazy stuff. Um, then you got all through the books, man. All through the all through the history, you got those kind of things. So read a read a um, read a Simeon or, or read Martin Lloyd Jones, our guy, mm-hmm. about uh, especially spiritual depression, spiritual, yeah. all those kind of things. Um, but yeah, read read that stuff rather than try to make something. Because when when we use Nehemiah or something like that as our, here's our book on leadership, isn't it weird we always kind of find our personality? That's right. You know, it's like, oh, I'm kind of a jerk. Oh, here's another jerk. (laughs) That must be how it's done. No. Um, When when Simeon was locked out, he didn't take bolt cutters and burn the place down. He just set up chairs outside, Hmm. you know, just like that. He didn't throw anybody out by their hair.
1: You know, I think I've heard that. I've
0: heard the name Charles Simeon, but
1: and it's, I hope not, I, it's not familiar to I'm me. I'm
0: pretty sure it's Simeon. I have to say this because it's been a while. I, I, remember re, I remember where I was when I read his biography. I was on an airplane. I could tell you where, what, where I was flying, but I'm pretty sure it was Simeon. But, yeah, and I'm not uh, questioning you. Yeah, if I'm our just, listeners know, please let me know if I'm wrong. I'm
1: displaying my ignorance that, wow, this
0: is somebody I need to read. That's yeah, good stuff. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for that question. As always, you can send us questions at our email. That's BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us questions on Instagram and or Twitter at BibleGuysPod. That is the same username for both of those. Make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform so that you can get new content released when it is released. We like to upload episodes to be released every Friday at 8 a.m. to help your commute go by faster. For Jerry Hullinger, I'm Rick Clonard. Go Cubs in 2022.